the government obviously has, you know, decided that, that we're going to end domestic family and domestic violence in a generation. I I don't think that that's possible. Um, I think solving some of the challenges and um, really kind of we have to believe we can solve it and I just don't think we can do it in a generation. It's so complex and the um, the inputs into the crisis are, you know, so numerous that um, there's not one fix. Um, there's probably not even a handful of fixes. It's so multidimensional. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. They are your go-to full-service digital marketing agency for bright and imaginative solutions. Learn more at neontreehouse.com or check out the link in our show notes. I'm also thrilled to announce that Arepa have joined us as our new drink sponsor for 2024. Arepa is the brain drink. It's refreshing, tastes great, and it helps you perform at your best without the caffeine jitters. Try Arepa for yourself and get an exclusive 25% Humans of Purpose discount by heading to drinkarepa.com.au and entering promo code HOP25 at checkout, again linked in the show notes. This week on the podcast, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Melanie Greblow. Melanie is the founder and CEO of both Scribed and Banksia Academy. Scribed is tapping an underrepresented remote workforce to enable their full participation whilst delivering excellence to customers. They're also building the talent pipeline for future skills shortages in the digital space. Their program is designed for impact, from employment models to support programs for women facing barriers to employment due to trauma. We also speak about Banksia Academy and some of Mel's other amazing work. Too much to preview here in this inspiring conversation. Before we get stuck in, a quick thank you to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre for sponsoring us this month. Make sure you listen to after you listen to this that you check out our recent episode with CEO and founder Con K. The ASRC are doing truly impactful work in supporting asylum seekers and refugees and making them feel welcome in Australia. One way you can get involved is to be part of the Feast for Freedom campaign. You can sign up now to celebrate what unites us. Just head to feastforfreedom.org.au today to register to host a life-changing feast. You can also hit the link in our show notes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mel as much as I did. Mel, terrific to have you with us today. Where do I find you on this uh, bizarre weathered morning across the country? It is Mike. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm in Sydney, CBD, and it is a very strange morning indeed. So where our office is on Macquarie Street, and it's looking quite grey out there over the Botanic Gardens. We're very blessed to be co-working here with um, another family foundation. Oh, lovely. Yeah, no, you're right in the thick of it there. And um Look, I, I caught up with a mate from Sydney last night who's been on the podcast, and we always say, yep, Sydney's great, better weather, not much else to talk about, but <laughs> <laughs> um, you know how it is, the, the old rivalry. But yeah. um, keen to get into your amazing career. I mean, uh, first of all, thanks for reaching out because when a, somebody who I look up to already listens to the podcast, that makes me feel great. So that's awesome. So thank you, first off. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure, and it's um, it's been great listening over the years. So thank you. 
Oh, absolute pleasure. So let's jump in. I mean, there is so much to cover here. On my notes page, I've just written keywords to examine. One is Snowy, so the the, the Snow um, Foundation Entrepreneurship uh, Program, or I've got that completely wrong, Fellowship or whatnot. I've got uh, Scribed. I've got Banksier Academy. I've got wanting to know about the Impact Investment Summit with the Gender Lens Focus. Um, I've got your um, CEO career before all of this. So there's – and now, now um, another question that I had on my – notes towards the end is how is she being a founder and ceo of two places at once she is she two people like what's going on here so lot to unpack crazy. there <laughs> mate i didn't want to assume crazy but i thought that that's that's a lot to take on so uh why don't you take us through um some of the chronology and, and your background as far back as you'd like and what led you to where you are today yeah great thanks mike um look you know i guess my I, you know, I, I went to university in Canberra for four years. I grew up in regional Victoria. Um, I spent, a, I kind of from a very young age wanted to see the world. So I spent a year as a student exchange student in France when I was 15 and 16. Um, that was a pretty kind of um, formative experience. Went to university in Canberra and towards the end of my degree, um, you know, I thought I would sort of take the usual kind of trajectory that everyone doing a Bachelor of Arts in communication would, go into some big kind of firm or the corporate world. Um, and then at the end of my degree, um, my younger sister, who was two years younger than me, so I'm 23 now, she's 21, um, she was diagnosed with cancer in the last year of my studies and she died um, the, the year after I graduated. And so I've, I here I was finishing university thinking I'm going to go travelling and, you know, see the world again and then come back and get serious about work and really just felt like, you know, I had the world at my feet um, and the world literally was my oyster. And then, and then her dying sort of just pulled the rug from underneath me and suddenly everything I thought was sure in life wasn't. And so, um, you know, I just obviously went through a period of grieving and, um, really kind of started to examine what what life was all about and really investigating kind of that, you know, well, what on earth was this for? What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Um, and so that kind of led me to the kind of work that, um, you know, I felt had some meaning and purpose. And so um, my early career was working in Melbourne at the YWCA and then I took a job at Canteen in Sydney. So I moved up to Sydney from Melbourne um, and was sort of, you know, heading up their national fundraising and public affairs. Um, yeah, so sort of fast forward, um, I really kind of wanted to do something um, in the end-of-life space. After my experience, um, I could see that sort of the the way we we, could, we kind of care at end-of-life and the systems and that, that we've got to do that were probably not... Um, optimal for all the things that you could gain from that experience and so the the social connection the cohesion the social capital that can be built when we bring people together you know when when people are most vulnerable to care for each other and really involve community in that so um that led me to become the founding ceo of home hospice which has since sort of gone on, went on to become um, Life Circle Australia and then is now um, called Violet Coat. And so they still do amazing work in that end-of-life space. 
um, really about mobilising community and those sort of, you know, community connections to care at end of life. Um, from there I went on to school aid uh, and then I went out on my own and that was for a couple of different reasons. I had another child, so my second child, and um, and then sort of found myself in quite a tricky um relationship and so really needed to I was also living an hour out of the city of Sydney and so needed to balance kind of working with being around for the children being quite local so I started you know um, my own business called Talking Sticks um, which then went on to become the Coterie for Renewal really about kind of sort of you know fostering um fostering our own inner development I guess and working on our um, inner leadership and self-leadership um, to affect a, to affect change in the world, and so we worked with anyone from artists to executives and everyone in between. Um, we brought a lot of thought leaders and um, really interesting people out from different parts of the world to Australia, and did kind of you know workshops and tours with them. That was fantastic. And alongside that, um, I was also curating the Impact Investment Summit, so working with the team at Impact Asia Pacific. Um, yeah, which included curating the first um, Gender Lens Investing Summit in this region, so in the Asia-Pacific region, back in 2021. It was hard to believe because it was sort of coming out of COVID. It was one of those tiny little windows we had where things felt like they were getting back to normal and then shut down again after that. So, mm. yeah, but we did it in that little time. That must have been quite an experience. Uh, I mean, I, I've been involved in the conference organising and curation space for a couple of years, and I know that was a particularly testing year. Do we go hybrid? Do we go fully remote? Do we try and find a window of um, of relief? Um, did you find one of those windows where people were ecstatic about just being able to be in the same room together? Yeah, it, absolutely. That was that summit, really. It was. Um, yep. I think we had about 150, maybe 200 people, and um, – it was that. It was also very strange, you know. I think everyone was there ecstatic but also quite apprehensive. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, there's plenty to unpack uh, through what you just said, but first of all, I'm very sorry for your loss of y- your sister. That must have been a very um, difficult time. And y- you sort of – I wonder whether some of the through line um, of this for you is sort of like understanding and finding that purpose and it's sort of whether that be um, harnessing the internal understanding who we are sort of community connection uh, more compare uh, more caring and compassion in the world uh, did that sort of set you on that pathway a little bit yeah absolutely and I think Mike it's like you know you don't really realize those things at the time it's with hindsight and retrospect that you can see that kind of through line as you say but absolutely, I think, you know, for a, certainly for a period um, after she died, I was just lost, I think. And I was sort of just, you know, going through the motions and taking on work because it was work and I needed, you know, wanted to work. So, um, but then it started to really, you know, I really started to get this, uh, just a real fire in my belly actually around community and you know, I guess there's work that we use different language for it now, but you know, it's we talk about regenerative communities and regenerative practices, and I think that's what um, something sort of grabbed me back then around that, and just has had me in its grip ever since. <laughs> that real, that deep desire to renew and regenerate ourselves and the world around us, our communities, um, the planet. It's it's amazing, and I think you know. 
uh, I shouldn't be so uh, simple as to assume there's a through line uh, of anything because I've often talked about the myth of career linearity. So sometimes we're just doing things because that's who we are. Um, and then you look back and you try and find a nice straight line through it. And, you know, that's that's sort of a bit of wishful thinking sometimes around why people made certain decisions. What's your assessment of how we're going as a community now and the words you'd use? Because, you know, I've heard a lot about community resilience, uh, regenerative communities, certainly um, becoming uh, definitely in vogue as, as a description and a, and a focus. But I sort of see, sadly, more divisiveness in community that I've seen in a long time. Um, and I think COVID played its part. I think geopolitics have played a part. Um, I think certainly the, the downturn in the economy has been tough and cost of living pressures. So there's really a lot to do there, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of heaviness. There's a lot of negativity in, in the world at the moment. And I think, you know, we, we're like we're bombarded by it through the media and social media. Um, I think, you know, when the war um, broke out in uh, in Gaza, I I just have consciously not, it's not, it's very been very counterintuitive for me to sort of just sort of close off a little bit from it. It actually was just too much mm. with everything else going on at the same time. And I guess particularly the the other kind of, you know, battle that we're kind of trying to, you know, contribute towards solving challenges around this other war really that we've got going on on our own turf which is the you know around domestic and family violence and that incredible um you know challenge that that is so there's only so much i think we can deal with as one yep. human being and to i think it's great to kind of really accept that and acknowledge it and care for ourselves because i think caring for ourselves and each other you know it's we we've lost that a bit as well, you know, and this it's so easy to kind of comment on social media and, you know, so many armchair activists out there just, you know, hiding behind social media. Um, and all the all of the kind of headlines and and click clickbait and sound bites that you can get without really going into the issues and really trying to understand. I think that's what we've lost. We've yeah. lost this real um, intention to to come at anything with um, the desire to learn, and that and the desire to learn around um, what is other. You know, we this idea that we we don't know how to disagree and and manage difference anymore. I think is probably like it's it's at the core of all conflict everywhere, whether it's in, in interpersonal relationships or on the world stage, and. I mean, that's just, that's so sad. Um, and maybe it's always been like that, but I think you're right. It's been amplified at the moment by other kind of circumstances and pressures on people. So, totally. Yeah. I think people, I think people yeah. like, um, angrier, uh, generally. And I think when people are sad and angry, it's a lot harder to have a meaningful conversation. And I think also that, uh, news and social media, um, from my perspective at least, used to be about trying to learn different perspectives and find some common ground and maybe uh, alter your views slightly. But I think, um, you know, for a little while now, or certainly since uh, October, um, it's very much been about um, pick a side. This is my side. You're not part of my tribe. I, this is my tribe. Um, you're on my turf. Get off my turf. Um, and a lot, lot of... Um, 
gross stuff happening. And I think oversimplification of things in the media doesn't help and a lot of um, clickbait type of activity. So, yeah, we're certainly in a messy time. Um, you mentioned the, the war on domestic violence. I mean, we have certainly um, talked to a few wonderful people on the podcast about that. It's a very, very troubling topic, I think, um, not just for me, but for our audience and, and for our speakers, but such an important space to be working in. Talk to me about what's been going on in that space, because I, I think maybe when you talk about a war um, on domestic violence here, people um, who are may not have as much involvement in the space or not as good a knowledge might not know that we are facing um, a, a real crisis. So tell tell me what you're hearing, what you're seeing, and, and your perspective on the, the state of play at the moment. Yeah. Look, I think I, I want to clarify too, I guess, too, I use that term war on domestic violence, but I've but I honestly feel like um, we're not going to solve we're not going to solve a problem like domestic and family violence by being at war. I think we've got to sort of return to peace. Yes. And, so I want to clarify that from my yeah. Own let's strip that method. Let's strip that terminology back. It's probably a bit um, insensitive from both of us. But you go ahead. <laughs> um, but it is a it is a, a an absolute crisis of epidemic proportions. That's that's for certain, and it's certainly um, you know the case here in Australia, but it's also the case elsewhere. Um, you know, it it's the government obviously has you know decided that that we're going to end domestic family and domestic violence in a generation. I I don't think that that's possible. Um, I think solving some of the challenges and um, really kind of we have to believe we can solve it and i just don't think we can do it in a generation it's so complex and the um the inputs into the crisis are you know so numerous that um there's not one fix um there's probably not even a handful of fixes it's so multi-dimensional um but you know it's got it i think we we've seen um an increase in um domestic and family violence murders this year, most of them perpetrated by men against women. Um, you know, we can, we still see on the whole men killing women and um, we generally are not seeing the other way around. So I just wanted to sort of preface that first. And it's and for those listeners who don't know much about it, I think it's important to know that um, this year alone there's been, you know, more than 65 deaths of Australian women that have been killed um, at least 60 of those have been by intimate partners or ex-partners. So that it's more than one a week and it's alarming. And it's really important also to know that that number is literally just the tip of an iceberg. So what is what is invisible underneath that number um, are all the women who are, who are being murdered or um, injured or psychologically irreparably damaged, um, you know, in their thousands and and then the, the flow-on impacts of that um you know particularly when we where we also include the victim survivors of coercive control um uh, the children of those you know usually women it just sort of ripples out and the the challenge then and the, and the the problem is just at an enormous scale and when you start to, you know, we're learning more about trauma and the impacts of trauma all the time through great research and, um, you know, fantastic people doing work in that space. And, you know, if you think about it with that lens as well, and we're trying to kind of mop up trauma that's, that's coming from other places in so many ways, um, 
and we're struggling to do that. Like when we, and you think about the kind of compounding effect of family and domestic violence now on children, um, obviously the, the 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 women who are experiencing it as well, but then their children, and any and fat the fam the wider family circle that it impacts grandparents, siblings, um, and it goes on. The the compounding effect of trauma, like I just can't see that if we don't do some things radically different in the next sort of, you know, five, 10 years, we're just going to have this multi-generational, you know, on flow on of impact for years to come that that our health system, our education system and our economy already is buckling under. So we just won't be able to cope. And I think, you know, I kind of say, you know, in the last couple of years, if we manage to avert climate crisis, you know, we we might wake up in twenty years to a social landscape that is unrecognisable, yeah, and, and and systems that just cannot cope with with what's being created. So, yeah, I think that's sort of that's the problem, and that's the scale of the problem. And then you've got the the very up close, intimate, lived experience of women and children, um, on a day to day basis accessing crisis support services um, or or not being able to access them or staying in violence because we also know now from the research we knew it anecdotally before but we know from the research from Dr Ann Summers now that women do face a choice of either staying in violence or leaving and being plunged into poverty and so it's kind of almost as black and white as that. It's the lived experience of so many women that they choose to stay because they can't afford to leave. Some also stay for many other reasons. Um, some as kind of acts of resistance, some to protect their children better. They feel that they're more protected if they stay. Yeah, there's a whole re- lot of reasons. But, um, you know, the financial impact on women is massive. And so that's the kind that's the piece i guess that we that i set out to try and contribute towards you know part of the solution i can't say that it would be all the solution but certainly part of the solution so your your focus is on social and economic participation or trying to get women um who are experiencing that sort of violence back towards that or a semblance of that um talk to us a bit about how you've been able to do that through banksia and uh, scribed as well yeah so so it was through um, a, an experience of my own that I, you know, came across a, a bit of a market failure, really. And I thought I was at a point in my journey where I was really looking at how can I contribute to some solutions here, um, having, you know, um, a lived experience lens as well as uh, my career background. You know, what can I what can I mobilise here? And so um, I I thought, well, if if the challenge that I was having was that I'm trying to kind of look after my children, I'm trying to get them to appointments, myself to appointments, manage family court processes, um, all of that. And I was just lucky that I had a job, you know, that I that I had worked for myself and I could earn a decent living. And yes, that business suffered enormously because of what I was going through. But at my lowest, I would often think, well, how are all the women going through this? you know, surviving without the kind of support or networks and love and, you know, the family and friends that I have. And and I soon realised that they weren't, they were literally drowning. So um, I set about kind of co-designing what an employment model might look like and work might look like for women experiencing similar um, 
things. And, and so Scribe came about because of that market failure that I saw. So we started out in the transcription space. Um, we've expanded our services to various other things now. But, but um, essentially the work that we – essentially what we're doing is mobilising an untapped workforce and, and then wrapping the right supports around them to um, be able to participate in um, work that's fit for purpose for them. So it's remote. Um, it's flexible, it's um, um, well remunerated because we're setting these women up to work in the digital economy um, in with sort of higher skills than they might, you know, they might otherwise sort of be able to find themselves working in. So that's how the business started, Scribe. So now we're servicing clients, both, you know, transcription, um, digital marketing, social media management, content production, um, we do board minutes for a lot of boards that don't have a company secretary and the CEO is always scrambling to get them done. Um, uh, uh, yeah, and some other kind of general administrative services too. And we're looking at kind of ways that we can service big companies um, in helping them prepare for the generative AI kind of revolution that's on their doorsteps. So, um, and then, you know, we once we got the business going, I realised that um, and talking to a lot of other, you know, um, incredible leaders in the impact space that have come before me um, around their models, their business models and their structures and, and how it worked. And so I realised that, you know, really to kind of get the most impact and keep the business growing and not drain the profitability of the business, um, but, you know, through the kind of expense that kind of, you know, work integrated kind of social impact businesses sort of find themselves um, in, um, I decided we'd have a kind of a, a hybrid structure. So we had the business, the for-purpose business, and so we set up Banks Here Academy um, as a not-for-profit. It has DGR status, um, registered with the ACNC. So it is the kind of the engine room for um, really equipping women with the skills to be able to do the work um, and, and work at Scribed. So yeah, that, I love yeah. So that's no, I was just going to say, I, lo I love that model. I think it's really interesting, that um, dual structure. But uh, I'll interrupt it. Please continue. Yeah. I mean, look, it hates come. It's it's not um, for the faint of heart, as you said at the beginning. <laughs> um, start. You're essentially starting two businesses at once. And um, I'm, still, I'm still quite, you know, confident that we did it the right way. Um, and I know that the we've been able to access sort of funding um, that we otherwise wouldn't have to to get things started, which has been amazing. So, um, so yeah, the academy really um, it it eventually may stand on its own, um, but it certainly probably will. Um, so it it does two things: it supports women to return to work, women survivors, and it supports women with lived experience um, in the workplace. So we're trying to build more support in workplaces for women to keep their jobs or not be performance managed, managed out of their roles, to take the um, promotions when they're offered them and really kind of kind of continue their career progression rather than what happens now is a lot of their careers are derailed because of their experiences. So they just can't manage, the workplace can't, you know, support them. And so we kind of bring in those supports for the workplace to better support them. Yeah. So if I'm understanding right, it's sort of like Banks Year Academy is that arm that does the, you know, what you'd expect not-for-profit work to be like. So that trading, 
education, upskilling, connection pathways. And then uh, you do a lot of the good work there and also have the ability to receive funding through that um, entity and um, do a lot of uh, promotional work as well around that. And then, um, you know, where the rubber hits the road is that sort of like uh, business arm, which is uh, Scribed. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. But the women then come in to work at Scribed and um, and then the, the academy still provides all of that wraparound support for them. Um, and we work closely with, you know, in partnership to do that. Um, yeah, and it's um, it's been a massive year. So really, I guess um, we only opened the doors to the academy in October last year. The virtual doors, I should say. It's all uh, the whole model's virtual. So um, anyone in Australia or or anywhere really can access it. Um, and so yeah, this year we were we spent the kind of you know bulk of the year in a um, negotiation process with the New South Wales government. And um, in August this year, we commenced um, delivery program delivery of a contract, um, a payment by outcomes contract with the New South Wales government. So we've um, we've set out a kind of pathway over the next four years for 150 women to come through um, the program, and um, with the outcome of having kind of you know secure employment really for a for a period of time. And, and develop digital-based skills along the way, um, be linked with a mentor to kind of really support them on that journey as well. So that's been um, huge and um, we just finished the first quarter of that program delivery and it's been an incredible experience so far. I think, you know, the benefit, one of the great benefits of co-designing with people with lived experience, which is what we did at the beginning, is that you kind of know from the outset that what you're building is going to work because it's what they need. And so that's proving to be true. So that's been an incredible learning and, and you know, there are challenges that are coming up that we knew might come up and we're sort of really kind of working around problem solving around that. So, um, but, you know, there are already three women now working at Scribed through that program alone. Um, and, yeah, um two cohorts have already completed their digital skills training. So we're off to a great start. And really impressive also the services and the the modality. I mean, talking a lot about AI, but um, sort of centred uh, delivery and, you know, tech, cyber safety and inclusion, um, doing a lot of real digital kind of almost like on the advanced end of digital service delivery for the new era, which is probably, I mean, could call me on naive, but probably not what you'd expect to see from something like this, which is what makes it kind of very cool and appealing as well. You know, you've got this really uh, modern um, service offering and a really sleek website. And I just think it's, I think it's fantastic. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> yeah, it's, Um, I think the, again, it's that kind of listening to listening to the voices of people with lived experience has been so critical because this isn't rocket science. It's marrying, I guess, it, it's it's also knowing that women who have experienced domestic and violence, we know that it doesn't discriminate. We know that every single woman across the social, you know, socioeconomics, you know, um, spectrum is impacted by this. So we have women coming to us who have PhDs. We have women coming to us who have been, you know, in C-suite executives. We have women come, you know, there. Some of the women coming to us are extremely skilled, and so, you know, we're not 
it's not ground zero that we're starting from. And then even the younger women coming to us, they're digital natives anyway, you know. So some of the services that we're offering, uh, it's not too much of a leap if with the right training and supports for them to to go from sort of, you know, doing their own social media to learning a more structured way of managing a client's social media. So it's not to kind of diminish um, the you know, the expertise that is out there, um, particularly, you know, if you, you know, a very kind of schmick um, social media agency or something like that and marketing agencies. But, um, you know, we're not kind of, I guess the service that we're delivering is not that expertise. It's kind of where, you know, a lot of so small and medium-sized businesses don't have capacity and so we're really building, we're really about, you know, that capacity solution for, for SMEs um, um, in a way that's still really quality work, but it's not that level where, you know, you really need to be running a million dollar kind of ad campaign and you want the best strategy and the best creative and it's not that. Yeah. Curious about what you learned from that co-design process. I mean, speaking to people with lived experience, um, a good co-design always comes first and then sort of, you know, doing your your thinking um, and planning around that. What were some of the things that came up that um, the people with lived experience you spoke to um, sort of identified as current or potential barriers to full participation in this sort of employment? And and, and did that turn out to be, be the case more or less? Yes, yeah. So the barriers that um, most of the women, you know, in our lived experience kind of workshops shared with us were um, that there's no flexibility in jobs. Um, the 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 need to physically go somewhere to a job was a barrier. Um, if they had small children, either at home, preschool, or even primary primary age kids. Um, the cost of that, the cost of transport to get to work and back, the cost of, um, you know, dressing for work was a, an issue. Um, the Mostly the time, the flexibility to, you know, if you've, you've got to go, A, go to work physically, then you've got to take the kids to their um, court-ordered family therapy, whatever it might be. Um, you've got to go pick them up from school. That's more transport. You've got to get them to the appointment. You either got to get them back to school. You've lost hours in your day, and so it's that flexibility that um, that's the, that was the number one barrier. So trying to juggle all of the competing demands on their time, plus the impacts of trauma on themselves. Um, you know, anxiety, depression, lack of self confidence. Um, you know, I say lack of self confidence, but in many many cases their confidence has been absolutely annihilated. So it's not just a, a matter of sort of, you know, a few kind of, you know, lovely quick things we can do together that are going to help you lift your confidence. It's, um, you know, the the nature of coercive control. I love the way that um, Jess Hill, who's done a lot of work in this space, talks about it, that the the purpose or intention behind the the actions of a person who's coercively controlling is to absolutely decimate the, the victim's nervous system so it's not a physical thing it's not a you know and and it, that's exactly what it does and so the women coming to us that's what we see that they're in that state where their nervous system is just completely shattered so um that flexibility is just so key so that they can you know manage their time in a way that 
um, they can access all of those supports for them and their children and prepare for court hearings and things like that. Um, and then childcare was a massive barrier as well. It still is for some of the women in our programs. Um, one woman had to stop working with us because she couldn't get childcare and she couldn't, he was getting of an age, the child where it was too difficult to manage. He needed attention, you know? So, um, that's a huge barrier and the, and the types of childcare, you know, the, there's not enough different modes of childcare available, you know, almost all of the women said that they could manage to work and do everything else if they could get childcare in their home that was subsidized. But no, you have to a try and find a place at a center and take the kids. All of that we all know if you've got kids. So um, that was another barrier. Um, so you've got kind of barriers at that at that I- intrapersonal level, the kind of stuff that's going on inside you. Then the interpersonal level is you know we talk about women leaving abuse, we talk about women escaping violence, but particularly when there are children involved in the relationship. Often that abuse doesn't end; it continues. It's post-separation abuse, um, and 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 the coercive control elements might change, um, shift dynamics a little bit, but they generally continue. Um, and so, you know, often it's you know protracted, like years long, sometimes more than decades long. It could be in the family court for several years, going into the tens of years. So, um, this stuff doesn't really stop. So, and then you've got those community barriers where, you know, transport, childcare, those things are, you know, not um, not making things easier for you. And then you've got the kind of structural slash institutional barriers that mm. women, you know, in a gendered way face anyway. Jeez, mm. it, it, it sounds like a mountainous sort of challenge. Um, you know, the, the only small smidgen that I can relate to from a very privileged perspective is, you know, coming back from um, very challenging periods of depression w- was hard enough for me to come back to work. But I'd imagine that as one of several elements in an ongoing trauma of, you know, uh, emotional, physical violence, um, you know, challenges around uh, needing to get to certain places, resources, challenges, coercive control challenges. Do you ever just think, wow, this is hard and how am I doing this? Um, no, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think of the whole um picture in front of us as a as a society, it's very hard, very challenging, very that's yeah, that kind of causes pain, to be honest, and hurt, but um and great concern. But on a day-to-day basis, I think, you know, taking the action and having I think that sense of active hope that um when you can, you know, bring it back down to individual interactions and the transformation that you can see before your eyes on one individual life, and then and then if they have children, their children, it's enormously um, uh, uplifting, and that you know that that supporting women towards that financial independence, you know, then you, again you start to see if we can start to scale up the solutions. And that, that that financial independence and full economic participation is part of the solution. It's part of kind of breaking that cycle of, um, you know, sometimes intergenerational poverty and and then the and then the you know things that come out of that. Um, it's that's enormous. That's 
you know, at scale, that's just as enormous as the problem. So you're starting to sort of tip the scales a bit. And so I, it's a long-term vision. You know, this is this is mm. a long thing. We're definitely running a marathon here. Um, but, yeah, those that feeling that you're making a contribution towards the solution I think is, you know, it's really empowering to, uh, to us as a team and, and obviously to the women that we're working with. I suppose you're probably seeing enough success stories from all the hard work that that must uh, renew your hope and fill up fill the cup as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, to hear the feedback from participants that come through and small anecdotes of you know how it I've how you know them working with us either changed their day or or changed their week or they can already start to see it sort of really changing their life and that's it's incredible. Now, this is a, a huge full spectrum problem. Um, and I, I feel that you're very much working on that vital, uh, almost like reintegration part or rehabilitation part to get women back, um, into the workforce. Do you spend much time working with other organizations or doing much thinking around, um, things like early intervention, prevention organizations, um, thinking about the challenges on, on the male behavior side, for example? Just curious because, I mean, it's such a big problem that you work on part of. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it would be impossible to sort of say, I'm going to focus on the whole spectrum, but wondered what those relationships were like for you across that spectrum. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, you know, you, I think you can't work in this space and particularly, I guess, for, you know, crisis, frontline, you know, crisis support services for women and children um, and all of the other specialist domestic and family violence services, housing, um, the work we're doing. You can't work in this space and not lift your gaze towards that bigger full spectrum problem and all the complexities and contributing factors and um, the fact that it's gendered and you know, you you just can't not think about early intervention and prevention. And so we've we've certainly had conversations with um, other amazing organisations working in the space who have been working in this space long before we were for a long time with, um, you know, thought leaders who have been working in this space. We have continuing dialogue with them. Um, we haven't kind of... Um, hit upon something yet that we feel that we've got, you know, either expertise or um, kind of people power behind that we can really contribute to, but certainly in full support of all of the activity that is happening, it's not enough. It's not being funded enough. Um, you know, the healthy relationships, um, education in schools, the um, you know, there's some fantastic programs out there for young, for boys and young men, and they need all the funding they can get. You know, we need to just be throwing everything at those programs. Yeah. We know they work. We know they're great. Um, they're just not accessible to everyone. Yeah. And we need to find ways of innovating around that too to scale some of those, that prevention work, because it's, you know, we know that that, that it has impact. We've, we, you know, the group's doing it or measuring the impact. I'm thinking of you know, Anne Cave and um, Rights of Passage Institute and um, Tomorrow Man and those sorts of organisations, um, you know, really talking about, you know, healthy masculinity and, um, you know, all the things that, you know, all the ways that that can look. And um, it's great work, but I just, you know, from, from school to school, you sort of they come in, do the work, and then and then come out. Like we need to mm. find a way of embedding this in schools. Yes, yeah. 
embedding yeah. the, the life of a young person from such a young age. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people um, just this year around that in the sense that, you know, you can't talk to obviously three-year-olds and five-year-olds about domestic violence, but you can talk to them about healthy friendships and boundaries and and through that learning and and then if you kind of digitize and animate some of the resources and have them online and you know there's not there's not enough being done in that space and I'd love to contribute to to that so where we can kind of scale some of this education and resources I, I think would be amazing and um yeah I'd be really really keen to see that happen yeah absolutely I just think you know there are so many important stakeholders and touch points for this to sort of um be part of the solution and i can't help but think that you know like men are largely or if not predominantly responsible for this um so you know it's interesting that um you don't see a lot or enough i think being done or funded on on the side of educating men to be good men who understand appropriate uh, relationships, boundaries, what it means to be, a, you know, a healthy uh, man today. And I think that's also a really uh, confusing space in society um, with the way kids are growing up and the influence of social media, some of the um, types of folks that people look up to. Uh, I've always said that I don't think that we've ever had the heroes we deserve in society. And I think, you know, some of the modelling sort of shows that. But um Certainly a lot of work to do um, on the male side, um, especially, and and then the fantastic work that folks like yourselves are doing um, at Scribd and Banks here. What does uh, next year hold for you as we record this uh, sort of late 2023? What's on the horizon? What are you looking forward to in terms of your impact? And obviously, hearing about the New South Wales collab and grants, fantastic to support your work. What will you be looking for next year? Yes, look, next year's going to be, I said this year it was a big year, but next year's going to probably be even bigger, um, probably in a way that, that you know, we've really sort of set the foundations to really scale both the business and our impact now. So um, we're very, very fortunate to, I was fortunate enough to be um, the recipient of a Snow Entrepreneur um, Fellowship this year. So that- Congratulations, of course. <laughs> That's um, provided some um, really um, fantastic funding to for us to support um, the appointment of a growth manager at Scribed, and um, and it obviously entails a whole lot of other fantastic wraparound support from the Social Impact Hub and Antla, and so um, very, you know, twenty twenty four is very much about growth for us both. Um, um, in a commercial sense and really building the pipeline of work so that we can offer more women jobs um, and then obviously the flow-on impact that that has and and kind of, you know, with those foundations set, um, knowing what, how the kind of academy um, operationally, I guess, how we really kind of optimise that and get the most impact for the women in terms of their training and development and their work readiness. So in the in the jobs that we know that are these fit for purpose kind of jobs. So um we're looking at kind of a different sort of strategy around our training where we're going to maybe potentially kind of modularize some of our training and really focus on specific applications and ramp up our generative AI training as well. Um yeah, so that'll be next year. And um yeah, there's obviously we've got some set targets around how many women we want employed and out of hours employment and 
um, I think we're well on our way to achieving those. Um, the, the, the demand for people coming into the program with the government's far outstripping the um, kind of, you know, what we can actually take in at the moment. So hoping to sort of build our funding base to to open the doors to more women. Congratulations on an incredible amount of work to date, uh, great results and great ambition for next year or probably this year when people are listening. How can people uh, connect with you and support your work? Yeah, um, many ways, I guess, um, without sort of having to do a laundry list. Um, the Through Scribe, the website, www.scribed.com, um, or contact me. My social handles are at Mel Greblo, Melanie Greblo on LinkedIn, um, or Banksier Academy. There's um, banksieracademy.org. There's a load of different contact details on that website. Um, yeah, when we're looking for mentors all the time to support the women with their digital skills training and journey um, and their journey to employment, um, is those sort of more skilled volunteers. Yeah, and um, and a whole lot of other ways people can get involved, so we'd love to hear. It's been an awesome uh, taking the time to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mel. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure.